Good morning. Welcome to our next installment concerning 1 Thessalonians as we open this wonderful epistle from the Apostle Paul. I always like to say those words, epistle from the Apostle. Doesn't it just sound cool? The title of today's message is Three Key Relationships of a Member of the Church. Now, initially, I had titled this Three Key Relationships of a Minister of the Gospel because Paul is writing this, and of course, it it relates to his ministry. But as I looked at it, in fact, I made the change just this morning that the things we're looking at today do not apply primarily to a minister of the Gospel, but to all members of the body of Christ. And so I made that minor change. And if you see any places where I didn't slip this change in, just uh, ignore that because it applies to us. So let's take, uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 17 through 20. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. For you are our glory and joy. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches of your word. I pray that you will open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your word today and that they would apply to our hearts and our minds, that we would embrace them with our soul. And Lord, that it would show up in the way that we act toward one another. And we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So in this passage, we see three key relationships that should be a part of every faithful member of Christ's church. Okay, in response to the accusation that Paul has received, It's implied, but you can tell by the way he's responding, that he's being accused of not really loving the Thessalonians. And so he's revealing now three key relationships of a faithful minister of the gospel. There it is, I just missed that one. A faithful member of Christ's church in relationship to these three things. And the first one is a love for God's people that longs to be with them. A love for God's people that longs to be with them. Secondly, a wise understanding that Satan is an enemy, that Satan is the enemy of the gospel and of the minister of the gospel and of the member of the body of Christ. And thirdly, a joyful anticipation of Christ's return with his saints. That's an important part of this relationship. And so those are the three key relationships we're going to explore here today. And these three key relationships are referenced in this brief passage in such a way that he ties them all together. This is the way a member of the church should Think and feel and act. So, beginning with 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 17, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. We can see from this passage that Paul had a love for the people of God that allowed him or caused him to long to be with them. He wanted to be with them. The accusation has come that uh, he has not returned to Thessalonica because he doesn't care. So 
Paul is responding to that accusation in this brief passage. If he really loved you, he would come back to you. He hasn't come back, so he doesn't really love you. And Paul's response is that that is not true. And it's a strong response. You'll notice that the words that he uses in this verse are laden with deep emotion. He feels strongly about this. And so as we read again, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart, we've endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. So you can almost see the tears streaming down down Paul's face as he writes this to the Thessalonian Christians. These young Christians who had only been with him for a brief period of time, now he's departed and they, they want to see him again. And Paul begins this passage with, But we, brethren. But we, brethren. This but we is in contrast to someone else. So who is that? Who is Paul contrasting himself with? The answer is in contrast with the Jewish leaders who stirred up the persecutions and drove Paul out of town. Notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 16. These Jewish leaders were forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And so then Paul begins the next verse with, but we, brethren, we're not like that. In contrast to the Jews' heartless persecution of the young church, Paul writes, but we were not like that. The circumstances of Paul's departure were painful. Painful to him, painful to them, And this is why we find this word bereft in the Greek, having been taken away from you. That's the way it's translated into English. But in the Greek, the phrase having been taken away from you would be better translated as having become bereft of you. Now, bereft is a term of deep grief. It's the kind of word that you use when you're grieving over the loss of a loved one. And that is how he is feeling toward the Thessalonian church. He's grieving over his separation from the Thessalonians. It's as though he's been ripped, or they have been ripped out of his arms, like a child being ripped out of the arms of his mother and father as the parents are being dragged away. You can see images of this in the history of the World War II where children were taken from their parents as their parents were loaded onto trains. The children were lost, the parents were lost, and there's a deep grieving. And this is not an exaggeration because the circumstances of Paul's departure were violent. He's reminding them that he did not leave them voluntarily. But he was forced to leave their city by the Jews, the Jewish leaders, and by the mob that the Jewish leaders had recruited from the marketplace, if you recall, wicked men from the marketplace. And then, through that, the authorities of Thessalonica, the the government there. And so, in Acts chapter 17, in verse 9, we read, And so, when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So what is this talking about? Jason possibly was the initial elder and pastor of the young church. We see this pattern elsewhere in the book of Acts, where Paul would uh, stay for a season in a particular home, for instance, the house of Stephanus uh, in uh, Corinth and so on, and that over time that, that host would become Uh, in a kind of unofficial way initially, and then officially at some later date, an elder of the new church and a host of the church in his own home. And this man, Jason, possibly an initial elder or pastor of the young church, had made himself and others in the church surety 
for the fact that Paul and his team would really leave town. Now, surety means I'll give you this money, and if I don't follow through with this, then you keep the money. But if I do follow through with this, then I get the money back. Now, in some cases, it was not money. It was themselves. If he comes back, you can take me. I will be surety for the fact that he's leaving. And so Paul is leaving this young church uh, because to stay would put the church itself in jeopardy and against the authorities of the church. And so he, he leaves with weeping, not wanting to leave, but in Paul's mind, he is leaving for a short time. <clears throat> He's not leaving for a long period of time. He's leaving for a short period of time in presence, but not in heart. In other words, it's not a matter of out of sight, out of mind. They're in his mind. They're on his heart. He's carrying them with him, even though he cannot be physically with them. So he's bereft <clears throat> bereft of you for a short time. But his intention was to not be gone for long. However, it didn't work out that way. Time stretched out longer than expected, and Paul had been unable to return. Now, that raises the question of just how much we take for granted that we'll see one another again. You know, you can say goodbye to somebody, you know, at the airport and say, uh, see you when you get back. And there's a possibility you'll never see them again. Things happen. That's not to put us in a state of fear, but it should put us to a state of not taking one another for granted. To not presume upon the future to never allow the last words you speak to someone to be harsh or annoying or unforgiving. You know, we, we should be quick. We should not let the sun go down upon our wrath. That means don't go to sleep at night until you've resolved this issue. You know, make sure that if, as we would pray as children, if I die before I wake, what do you want the last words to be on the heart and the mind of the person that the Lord takes away in their sleep. It happens. So we should live our lives toward one another as those who do not take it for granted that we will see one another again. And Paul intended to come back quickly, but he was unable to do so. We seldom know what's going to happen. We're living right now in very precarious times. You know, we're, we're reading about nations uh, threatening very, very dangerous military actions, and not just against their own neighbors, but against their adversaries around the world. You know, we, we can so easily go to sleep at night thinking, well, well, we'll read about what's going on in the morning. You may not need to read about it. You may be a part of it. We live in very precarious times. And I've often felt, personally, that many of the prophecies that we read about in Matthew chapter 24, 23 and 24, and, and in the book of Revelation uh, concerning the last days, that, that many of those, those prophecies seem more likely to be fulfilled in a time following great, great crises, great disasters. When we read about a third of the people on earth being killed in some way, or a third of the fish, a third of the, uh, the birds uh, killed, you know, we can say, well, that's symbolic. Well, whatever it's symbolic of, it's pretty serious. Now imagine how desperate the world would be, those who have survived such a cataclysm, how desperate they would be to bring order back and how willing they would be to follow anyone who promised to put things back in order after the devastation of that crisis. I have no idea what that crisis could be. We can always surmise from the headlines, but history has a way of surprising us. And so let's not take for granted that we have a tomorrow. 
Let's make today count and do the things today that you have no regrets in any future, including your future 10,000 years from now when you are in the presence of the Lord, rejoicing in his presence. Let there be no regrets at that time as to how you've invested the time you have here on earth. And Paul writes, in presence, but not in heart. Even though Paul and his team were gone from the Thessalonians, friend, from Thessalonica, the Thessalonian church uh, was not gone from their hearts. They carried them with them. As we'll see, Paul carried his concern for the young churches, not just the Thessalonians, but for all the churches on his heart as the heaviest and most difficult trial that he ever had to endure. You say, well, where do you find that? I find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 24 through 28. Paul loved God's people, his people all over the world, and because of his epistles throughout all time. And so he writes, as he's describing what it's like to be the Apostle Paul, He says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. That's 39 stripes. Why 39? Because according to the Jewish law, any more than 40 would be a sin. And to avoid committing that sin, they would stop at 39. And it was also considered to be a humane limitation so as not to uh, kill the person being beaten. But that doesn't mean it was any less painful. Three times, he says, I was beaten with rods. Now we're talking about some you know, baseball bat-sized sticks. And he's beaten three times. Once I was stoned. We read about that. He was dragged outside the city. They thought he was dead. I think he was dead. And God raised him back from the dead after the disciples prayed around him. And he got up and walked back into town. Three times I was shipwrecked. We only know of one of them uh, in detail, but evidently at two other occasions he was uh, shipwrecked, and that was normally a death sentence. A night and a day I have been in the deep. That means treading water out there in the Mediterranean Sea, waiting for someone to come along. In journeys, often. And journeying at that time was not like driving down I-5. We're talking about walking long distances over difficult terrain. In perils of waters. Often this is, this is all part of the journey, I think. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers in your journey. In perils of my own countrymen, the Jewish, uh, the, those who were pursuing him because he was now building and teaching what he had once destroyed. In perils of Gentiles, that means the, those pagans who had an interest in keeping things the way they were, such as the idol makers in Ephesus, who didn't want their, their trade to be disrupted by all these people abandoning their faith in these false gods. In perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. You know, there's nothing more painful than being betrayed by someone that you thought was your brother in Christ, and it turns out they were not. In weariness and toil, working to support himself and his team so there's not to be a burden or to create a bad example for the early churches. In sleeplessness, often. And it wasn't insomnia. It was anxiety and worry and concern about what is going to happen next. In hunger and thirst, in fastings often, and not always voluntary fastings, in cold and nakedness. Now if you stop right there, you say, wow, Paul, you have had it rough. You have suffered. But then he says, And besides these other things, what comes upon me daily, 
It's my deep concern for all the churches. Paul carries this deep concern, and it is one of the greatest suffering that he does as he suffers for the church, bringing the church in prayer to God, seeking to do all that he can to build up the church. And Paul tells us here that that deep concern for all the churches outweighs all these other sufferings that he's been through. So Paul bore the concern that we often feel just for our own family members. Imagine having a family of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, and he's carrying them all before the Lord with deep concern, knowing that they are suffering, as the Thessalonians were suffering the persecution of the Jews and of the authorities there in Thessalonica. This is the attitude that Paul had toward the churches. His love for all the churches was clear. And we see it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Paul is writing in the hopes that people will realize how much he loves them. And Paul was also loved by God's people. We see this in various places, but it's most clearly on display in Acts chapter 20 and verse 36. And when he had said these things to the elders there in Ephesus, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And then they all wept freely, openly, and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. Paul knew this is the last time he was going to see the elders there in Ephesus. And so they wept. And they wept as they accompanied him to the ship. So the accusation that Paul did not love the Thessalonians was absolutely false. He loved them deeply. And when you love someone, you want to be with them. And this might be considered a test of your love. Do you want to be with them? You know, as a, as a husband and father, sometimes it's, it's easy for us to you know, get into that mindset of, I need a little space for myself. I need a little, little time to myself. And that's not all wrong. But we need to be careful that we're not beginning to be like those who are looking for an excuse to get away. You know, we often are frustrated, especially with kids at certain ages where they're just not fun. You know, they're not fun to be around. They've got a lot of need for encouragement and training, and sometimes that's not fun either. And so it's easy to just duck out you know, just to find an excuse. Oh, I got to go take care of something over here or over there. Be careful of that. When you love someone, you want to be with them, even though they are a burden upon your heart. I'm sure not all the Thessalonians were necessarily agreeable. You know, they had, had their things, their issues. But Paul endeavored to be with them. It says, we endeavored, that's, that's work. You know, we worked hard more eagerly, That's, that shows the energy behind it, to see your face. To see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul. Not just send a messenger as he had to do, sending Timothy to the Thessalonian church. He says, I wanted to come. I wanted to see you. And I think this idea of seeing your face Uh, could speak to us, especially in our day, with so many alternatives to actually being there and seeing somebody face-to-face. You know, some things are best said face-to-face. And I just want to insert in here, and not by text. Okay? Because with all of our emojis and our ways of trying to communicate our our, uh, emotions... A text often comes across as harsher, 
than we intend it to be, more cold, more cut and dried, you know. But when you're with somebody, they can see your body language. They can see your facial expression. They can see your posture. And so we want to think about that and and be careful not, not to take the shortcut in a relationship that could actually hurt that relationship or even break that relationship because of the way something was said and not face to face. Paul then and his team tried over and over again to come and see them. So why had not Paul come back? Why didn't he come and see them? But Satan hindered us. Now this is all he says in this passage about this topic. But it opens a window into what it was like to be a a minister of the gospel at this time. And so our second relationship is that Paul had a wise and accurate understanding of Satan as his enemy. He recognized the working of Satan. And he's not because he's some superstitious, you know, indigenous person out there thinking that every rock and tree has got a demon in it. He's not that way. But he is very much aware that Satan is real and that Satan is his enemy. So how can Satan hinder us, as Paul says? Well, as I I often, after I put together a message, I'll go and check what some of my, my pulpit heroes have to say about these passages. You know, just kind of a reality check. Did I miss anything? Did I get anything wrong? You know, not, not to, to plagiarize, but to kind of just do a comparison. Did you see the same thing I saw in this passage? And I was pleased to see that uh, John MacArthur saw some of the same things that I have seen. And so here's a quote from him in answer to the question, how can Satan hinder us? And so he just lists it off very quickly. By lying. Satan is the father of lies. By tempting. By snatching the word away, as we read in Matthew 13. By harassing, as he harassed Job. By imitating, disguising himself even as an angel of light. Accusing, as he did the apostle Peter. Sifting, as he did to Peter, shaking him up, distressing his life, smiting with disease, as in Luke 13 and and chapter 16, possessing, as we see in the Gospels again and again. He even kills. He is the father of murderers. He is a murderer from the beginning, Jesus tells us. He devours. He deceives. And so it goes. He's got a myriad of strategies. So, Satan, as one book put it so well, is alive and well on, on planet Earth. And we sometimes uh, forget that or want to forget that. And we're even embarrassed by the idea that we think that Satan was involved in something. But Satan is actively involved in various ways, and it's always in opposition to the church. Martin Luther, in his famous hymn, wrote, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Luther often would have arguments with Satan uh, when Satan would condemn him and try to intimidate him and frighten him In one case, he threw an inkwell at the devil. (laughs) And we laugh at that, but he knew that Satan was his enemy. Maybe we need to throw more inkwells around. Do you really believe the devil is out there? That he hates you because you are loved by God? That he hates your children? That he hates your success in any area of life? That he would hinder in every way he could. And the fact is that God does allow Satan to hinder. But he does so for God's own reasons, not Satan's. As with Joseph's brothers, you meant it for ill, 
Satan means it for ill, but God meant it for good. And that's the way it works. The devil is real. We see in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9, our Lord Jesus is speaking to the church at Smyrna, and he says, you have there, he says, blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue, an assembly of Satan. An assembly of Satan. Now, we know historically what was going on in the churches in the first century, that the Judaizers were doing everything they could to draw uh, new Christians, weak Christians, back under the yoke of uh, the Mosaic law, saying you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You have to begin to participate in all the Jewish law in order to be truly a, a, a Christian. And Paul had to fight against this and constantly fought against this. And it looks as though he actually lost the argument for many years, as we read in 2 Timothy. If you read 2 Timothy closely, you'll notice that Paul is not in the majority opinion at that point. He's actually being uh, resisted by those who are Judaizers. And he's telling Timothy, don't you go that route. Don't you fall away. And it wasn't until the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. that the early church dusted off the epistles of Paul and began to read them again. There was a period where Paul was on the outside and the Judaizers seemed to be on the inside. But God knew what he was doing and he made sure that the Apostle Paul's writings were preserved the manuscripts were preserved, and our Bibles, our New Testaments, uh, were made available to us to this very day. In Revelation 2 and verse 13, we read, To the church of Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Whoa! What is that all about? Well, this is probably, most Bible scholars see this as a reference to the great altar of Zeus that was renowned throughout the Roman world and that stood near the summit of Pergamon's Acropolis. And so this, this uh, altar to Zeus is referred to by Jesus, note, as where Satan's throne is. Now what that gives us is a window into how Ancient myth, mythology, Roman and Greek mythology interface with Christian revelation, biblical revelation. Who is behind these idols? Paul tells us that demons are behind these idols. And so he makes some of his arguments concerning how we should relate to things that have been offered to idols with an understanding that the idol itself is nothing but there are demonic powers behind those idols that would draw people into captivity to, to bind their minds and make it more and more difficult for them to, to see the truth and believe the gospel. And so we need to be careful in regard to these things that even though they are in and of themselves nothing real, they are still a clever way for Satan to get his grip upon the human heart and soul. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 24, we read, to the church at Thyatira, the rest of you who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan. The deep things of Satan. What is that referring to? Paul tells us in another place, not to be taken in by the doctrines of devils or doctrines of demons. There are constantly being published or republished books that would tell you to give you the inside scoop on what's going on in the, in the spiritual realm. And it's very uh, alluring. I mean, there are things like, I died and went to heaven and was there for 15 minutes and I'm here to tell you what I saw. And I've known 
Christians who have been taken in by those books and they say, it's, I don't see anything here that opposes the scriptures. But see, that's just the point. It is a violation of the sufficiency of scripture to think that you're getting any information from outside of scripture that holds any kind of uh, equal merit or value to scripture. Think of it as this way. You have in your heart and mind a category called scripture. And that's the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, nothing else. If it's not in there, it's not scripture. If you allow anyone's voice or writing to invade that category, you are, are compromising the sufficiency of Scripture. It doesn't matter if it's John Piper or, or uh, John MacArthur or you know, R.C. Sproul or anybody like that. If they're saying something and you allow what they say that is not Scripture to move into the category of Scripture, you are violating the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, can we commentate on what the Scriptures have to say? Yes, I'm doing it right now. But what I'm saying is not to be considered Scripture. Mine is only to try to observe and comment on what the Scriptures actually say. And the only thing that has authority are the Scriptures themselves, not my opinions about them. Now, when you got off into these books about the occult, where people claim to know, you know who all the, the different fallen angels are, and, and, and it gets weird, okay? Whether or not some of those things are true, well, let me be careful how I say this, whether or not some of those things are true, if you begin to get your worldview, including your spiritual worldview, from those resources in such a way that it adds to or supplants what's actually stated in Scripture, you're on very dangerous ground. We don't need to know the deep things of Satan. If God has not chosen to reveal it to us, we don't need to know it. And if we do know it, it'll do, do us harm, and it'll do harm to those around us. And so we want to just be completely childlike in regard to evil. I don't need to know that stuff. And we want to be mature as it comes to the things of God. I want to go deep with the things of God. I don't want to go deep with the things of Satan. And so when somebody claims to give you the inside scoop, you just say, I don't want to hear about it. I don't need to know about it. In Revolution... Let's see, here we go. I've lost contact with my clicker. I'm being hindered by Satan. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 9, to the church of Philadelphia, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are not, that they are Jews and are not but lie. Remember, Satan is the father of lies. And the only time he comes close to the truth is when it makes it easier for him to convince us of a lie. A little bit of truth in order to get us to swallow a great big lie. So Satan is always seeking, or actually it's sneaking around the churches, seeking to corrupt them, to defile them, to distract them, and even to split them. And Satan has only one primary tactic uh, and, uh, for hindering the church of God, and that is going after church leaders. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 2 through 7, we read, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, 
How will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. When we see church leaders falling to various temptations, remember that it is because they are church leaders that they are constantly bombarded with these temptations in the hopes that they will fall. Satan goes after church leaders most of all. He goes after those who would be righteous political leaders as well. He goes after those who would be righteous business owners as well. You see, Satan, uh, he's kind of like the lightning. It's the tall trees that get hit by lightning. You know, as long as you're not making any trouble for him, he's likely to just leave you alone. But when you begin to have some effectiveness, when you begin to have some impact, when people begin to listen to what you have to say, you need to be on your guard because Satan will hinder you. And he'll do everything in his little playbook to bring you down. And, and I like to say that he has a very thin playbook. You look at church history. He only has a few plays, but he runs them really well. And we tend to fall for them every time in the sense of not recognizing that just because someone is accused of something doesn't mean that they are guilty of it. We live in a world right now where there's an organization out there somewhere that as soon as they catch wind of you and that you're doing something effective for God, they will create a false accusation against you. You say, well, sometimes it's real. Yes, sometimes it is real. But sometimes it doesn't need to be real for it to have its effect. People have been driven out of the ministry because of some blue-haired person making an accusation. And the board of elders just immediately cave and ask their pastor to go on sabbatical. And it turns out later that it was not true. But the damage is already done. So we need to be wise about this. Just because someone makes an accusation doesn't mean it's true. And especially when that accusation is coming from an organization that hates the church. We are living in a time in which the world creates the problem and then accuses us of causing the problem. And I want to point to something that I believe ought to be obvious, but it's never spoken of. I was a hippie back in the 1970s, 60s and 70s. And I know for a fact, because of the crowd that I ran around with, that a lot of men, young men, would go into the ministry of a Catholic priest because they were tired of explaining to their mother why they weren't getting married. And the reason that they weren't getting married is because they were homosexual. And so there were many, and it was happening long before the 70s, many men going into the, quote, ministry as a Catholic priest in order to hide the fact from society that they were homosexuals. Now we suddenly have this crisis of children being molested by the Catholic Church. But it is not the Catholic Church that is molesting those children. It is the homosexuals who are not Christians, who have gone into the Catholic Church to hide the fact that they are homosexual in a time in which it was illegal to be known as an active homosexual. My point is, that crisis, as horrible as it is, was not caused because the Catholic Church was somehow intentionally harboring homosexuals, although it got to that point later, as some of those men were elevated to positions of high office within the Catholic Church. But if you follow the trend from back in the 1930s and on, you will discover that the Catholic Church as an institution was not as guilty as it is being portrayed. And the same can be done for evangelical churches. Large churches can be brought to their knees 
by the fact that they are accused of some things that they're not guilty of. And in many cases, it is not a Christian in the church that's committed these crimes, but rather someone who's come into the church looking for an opportunity to be a predator and a molester. And then the church is blamed for that activity when it is not the church, but rather the infiltration of these sinful men and women that has caused the crisis. Satan goes after church leaders. His opposition is to the church itself. And Satan is under God's reign. Look at Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, speaking to Peter, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now, I don't know about you, but in my mind, I'm going, Lord, why don't you just say no? <laughs> say, oh, you want to sift my, my lead apostle like wheat? No! But he doesn't. Why? Why does God not protect his people from these kinds of requests? And the answer is because God has a, a long-term benefit in view. And that's why he says, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned, see, Jesus is speaking prophetically here, that when you've returned to me, you're going to return to me, Peter. You're going to leave for a little while, but you're going to return to me. And when you have, you're going to be able to strengthen your brethren. And so Peter responds, as I would as well, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus' response is, Peter, you don't, you don't have the ability to be as faithful as you want to be. A lot of, a lot of people think they would be so faithful. Uh, let me give you an example. Having been a pastor for many years, there are a lot of men who are proud of the fact that they have not committed adultery. They have not cheated on their wives. And, and in some sense, uh, that is admirable. But the truth often lies in the fact that these guys are so ugly, nobody would ever be interested. So, so it's the handsome guy who's, who has trouble, right? I have had no problem, okay? I have not been, <laughs> nobody's pursuing me, okay? But you see the point. Sometimes we think we're so godly, and it's just because we haven't had opportunity. Sometimes we think we're such men of faith and power, but it's just because no, nobody's ever threatened us. Peter is living in the illusion that he is this really solid guy, and Jesus says, no, you're not. You need to be, but you're not yet. And Peter, after you go through what you're going to go through, you are going to be that guy. You are going to be that strong, godly apostle that I need you to be. He says, but, but you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And it happened just as Jesus said. And when that rooster crowed, Peter looked up and he saw Jesus looking at him. And I don't think it was a look of, I told you so. It was a look of, Peter, I got you. Hold on. I prayed for you. Your faith is not going to fail. I know you've failed yourself. You've dropped. You've lowered yourself to a place where you think you can't come back. But I'm telling you, it's all part of my plan to produce the apostle Peter. Satan intends to destroy us. God intends to build us up and make us strong. When Satan asks for permission to come after God's greatest servants, it is only given in order to make the man of God more of a man of God. Satan was given access to Paul as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10, 
And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations that he'd received. He was talking about his revelations just prior to this. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Can you imagine that? How do you do that? I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is Paul telling us here? He's telling us that God allows Satan to have access to us, but only for our ultimate good. Do you hear me? It is only for our ultimate good. And if you want to get the ultimate good that God intends that you to get out of this, you need to be willing to be open and honest about your weakness and not try to hide it and to create the illusion that you're not like the rest of us. You know, one of the problems in the church today is so many pastors are not allowed to be human. We want our pastors to be so elevated that we don't think they ever are tempted, that they never sin, they have nothing to repent of, and that can go to your head. That really can mess up your mind. Pastors need to be able to confess their sin to their fellow elders and not be fired. They need to be able to acknowledge that they are that they need somebody to travel with them when they go places, just in order to be safe. Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. Why do you think that was? Because it's easy to come into a village as an individual and then just blend in and never even share the gospel. You go in with two and you're going to share the gospel. Try it sometime. Go out with a friend and say, let's go share the gospel with somebody. And when you go with a friend, you will end up sharing the gospel with somebody. But if you don't, (laughs) it'll just be like any other day where you're sitting in the coffee shop, you know, enjoying your coffee and looking around. And you could even be praying, you know, but you don't end up actually opening your mouth and saying anything to anybody because there's no accountability when there's just you there, you and God, I believe God's smarter than we are about this stuff. And so he tells us to go two by two into the village. He he gives us a team of three, you know, Paul and Silas and Timothy. Paul doesn't want to be alone. He doesn't tell us exactly why he doesn't want to be alone, but I think that it's partly because of this thorn in the flesh issue. We have a tendency to treat this thorn in the flesh as though it must be uh, his eyesight, But that doesn't quite work because you don't, you're not humbled by your failing eyesight. You know, that's not going to keep you from being proud of all these wonderful revelations you've received. But if you're struggling continuously with a besetting sin, that'll humble you. And you could come to God and say, God, take this away. I am so tired of fighting against this. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. I I just kind of think that Paul was struggling with something. It was a messenger of Satan. It wasn't just a physical illness, although it could have included that. But I think Paul was struggling in ways that he thought it would be great if he could just be free from it. And God said, no, you'll be a better apostle if you continue to have to carry this. My grace is sufficient. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Keep walking in the Spirit. Do not indulge the flesh, even though you are tempted. As Paul says in Romans chapter 7, 
The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And who will set me free from this body of death? He says, I praise God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And then he says something astounding. He says, therefore, I will serve sin with my body. But with my spirit, I serve God. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is an aside. I'm not sure why God has taken me all this way. But I want some of you to understand your struggles. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, you think, God, just take it away. I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. Son doesn't seem to work. It's because God's got a bigger plan. And he intends for you to push against this stone, even if it never moves. Just keep pushing on it, pushing on it. You don't realize it, but your muscles are getting bigger all the time. Even though the stone never moves, keep pushing. Keep pushing against it. God's grace is sufficient for you. God is still in complete control. Richard C.H. Linsky, a, a Bible commentator from the 1930s, he writes, This by no means excludes divine providence, which rules in the midst of our enemies. Satan entered the heart of Judas so that he made plans to betray Jesus, and God permitted the betrayal for his own divine and blessed means or ends. So Satan succeeded in frustrating Paul's plans to return to Thessalonica, but only because this accorded with God's own plans regarding the work Paul was to do. Now, he doesn't mention it here, but I believe that part of that was this epistle. See, this epistle would never have been written if Paul had made it to Thessalonica. Do you realize that? God, get me out of jail! I'm sitting here in a Roman prison. How can I build your church from here? Shut up, Paul, and write. (laughs) Start writing. Start writing these epistles. Paul, you have no idea how much good you're going to do when you just write. You're a pretty good preacher, but I'm going to use you as an author of 13 books in the New Testament, most all of which were written from prison. Satan has brought many a martyr to his death, and God permitted it. The death of those, these martyrs was more blessed for them and for the cause of the gospel than their life would have been. It is ever so with Satan's successes. But no thanks to Satan. His guilt is all the greater. Satan will be punished for his sins, but God will use his malevolent intent to build up a church that's going to go on forever and ever and ever. Now, we have authority in the name of Jesus. We don't have authority to bind Satan, as some would say, but we do have the authority to cast out demons. James chapter and verse 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We have to push back. We have to fight. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, and he said to them, Go into all the world. Now this, this is a disputed passage in the Gospel of Mark. I know that. It, ha- it brings up some issues that a lot of people would just assume it didn't. Okay? But I'm glad that it's in the Bible. Because it says in very concise ways things that are said elsewhere in the Bible. And it brings them to us through the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ in a particular context of commissioning his church to go and take the gospel to the nations. Now, Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. The first one is, in my name, they will cast out demons. Notice, in my name, I will cast out de- they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. And so we have the day of Pentecost in view. They will take up serpents. 
You say, well, I don't like that one because people in Kentucky do this and it's weird, right? Well, do you remember the day when a serpent came out of the fire and latched onto Paul's arm? And everybody thought, oh, this guy's probably offended the gods and he's going to die. And Paul just shook it off into the fire and went on. And then they thought, oh, these are gods. And they started worshiping them. I'm glad this passage is there. It tells us there are things going to happen to you that God's going to say, nope, I'm not going to let that hurt you. And so it goes on. It says, if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. That is not an invitation to go drink poison. But it's awful handy if somebody tries to poison you. Right? There are times when people try to kill you. And then nothing happens. And the whole village turns to Christ. That happens in missions. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Doesn't say where they will all recover. It doesn't say they'll spring up out of their wheelchair and dance around on the stage. It says they will recover. The same is said for the elders. When the elders anoint with oil and pray over the sick, then the Lord will restore them. It doesn't say it happens suddenly, but it eventually happens. We need to be allowed to let the word say what it says and not read into it more than is there. Authority to act in Jesus' name assumes that we actually know Jesus. Now, Jesus makes the statement to one group where he says, uh, you've cast out demons in my name, and he says, but I never knew you. Okay, he could have had these guys in mind. It says in Acts 19.13, and some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, this, this is a real thing. They're itinerant Jewish exorcists. They cast demons out of people. They took it upon themselves. I love the phrasing. They took it upon themselves to call the the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the name, by by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. So they didn't even know Jesus direct. They knew Paul preached Jesus. So they're going to go ahead and use this name and see how it works. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the men in whom the, the man in whom the spirit, evil spirit was, leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them. In other words, he beat the tar out of them. So that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Why did God include this in the book of Acts? I think he put that there in order to tell us, don't try to impersonate a Christian. Be a Christian. Don't try to impersonate a Christian. And when you are a Christian, you have authority in Jesus' name to cast out demons. Someday when we have the time, I'll I'll tell you the story of the one time in my life where I had to cast out a demon. Maybe we'll make that a separate sermon. But for now, we go on to the rest of the passage. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our joy, our our glory and joy. So Paul had a joyful anticipation of Christ's return with his saints. He wants to be with them. He wants to encourage them. But now he's telling them that the great motivation of his life was that Jesus was coming back. But that was not all that he anticipated. He anticipated them coming with Jesus and standing before Jesus together. What motivated Paul's evangelism was his eager anticipation that Jesus would one day return with those believers that Paul had personally led to Christ. Paul is actively obeying what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 16 and verses 8 and 9. So the master commended the unjust steward. Remember the guy who who, uh, was being fired from being a steward? And so he goes out and asks all the accounts, uh, how much do you owe my master? I owe him about 50 shekels. Well, write down 25 shekels, and we'll call it even. 
So he, you know, he has authority to do that. He's still the steward. If the master had been a little smarter, he would have let the guy go, walked him out of the building, you know, and locked his office. But he didn't. He just, he just let him stay in the job and said, get ready, I'm going to fire you. And so he continued to use the authority that he had as a steward to give everybody a break. He says, I'm going to do this in order that when I am re- relieved of my duties, these people will receive me in and help take care of me. And so Jesus says, <clears throat> the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly, not sinfully, but shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, Jesus speaking to you right now, to us right now, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. That's this world's money. That when you fail, that means when you die, they may receive you into an eternal home. In other words... Use what you've got in this life to make friends for yourselves in heaven so that when you arrive there, there's going to be a party for you. You're going to be busy for all eternity going to all these receptions where people that you either led to Christ or people who those people led to Christ are going to want to say, this is the guy, this is the gal whose God used to get me into uh, a place of saving faith in Jesus. I think that there's going to be an awful lot of social life in heaven because we love one another, because we want to be with one another. We want to see one another face to face. I want to see all of my heroes from all of church history face to face. I want to have them over. I want to thank them for translating the Bible into English. I want to thank them for not giving in to the persecution of their Protestant Reformation. I want to thank them for pressing through the social ostracism that comes from being viewed as an old fuddy-duddy fundamentalist Christian in a time of modernist heresy in America. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, we read that the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. If we're going to imitate Jesus, if we're going to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, we are going to seek and save that which is lost. And we're going to do it with this idea that when we get to heaven, we are not going to get a a physical crown to put on our heads. Our joy and our crown is going to be all the people that we've introduced to Christ. That is going to be our greatest eternal reward. That's what Paul is saying. And so don't ever doubt that I love you, Paul is saying. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy.